One thing that fascinates me about history is how easily long past events get compressed the further back you go. This is not a breakthrough revelation, by the way. Plenty of much smarter people than I have made this point before. But because of the phenomenon, in 1,000 years from now, humans, if we are not extinct, will probably look at the dates between World War I, World War II, and right now as being in the same time period, almost as if we, you and I, lived through it. It is for these reasons, amongst others, that much of the facts that we know or think we know about particular bygone epics get compressed as well. I would wager good money that when you think about the Great Pyramid of Giza, you envision hieroglyphics, King Tut, and Cleopatra. And why wouldn't you? All of them are associated with Egypt, but they are also several generations apart from one another. First off, unlike most Egyptian monuments, no hieroglyphics were found within the Great Pyramid containing the sarcophagus of Pharaoh Khufu. It was built over 4,000 years ago. And Tutankhamun, a.k.a. King Tut, didn't rule the Fertile Crescent until a millennium later, and his reign only lasted under a decade, during which time he was not much beloved by his people as you might think. Most pharaohs before him worshipped a number of gods, as did the average Egyptian. But Tut's family believed in but one, Aten, the sun god. Monotheism was considered blasphemous to his subjects. And Cleopatra didn't enter the scene for yet another 1,200 years. And she wasn't even Egyptian. She was of Greek lineage. However, she was the first ruler of the Potolic dynasty who bothered to learn the local language, which endeared the Egyptian people to her so much that they called her the new Isis. This time crunch means that Cleopatra actually lived closer to the release of the 1973 blaxploitation film Cleopatra Jones than the building of the pyramids. Six feet two inches of dynamite. The Great Pyramid was originally 5,772 inches. In amassing info to use for this third season of Scattered Curiosities, I learned a whole lot of stuff I never knew about certain nefarious leaders and milestones. So, without further ado, let's get into it. With some off-the-beaten-path facts and corrected misconceptions, about some of yesteryear's distinguished despots and enigmatic eminences. Just about every head of the ancient world all the way up until the 1800s has cited Alexander the Great as the most formidable general ever to have lived. And why not? He never lost a battle, conquered nearly all of the known world, and spread Greek culture to it. 
So it may surprise you to know that the adjective great didn't get attached to his name until long after he died. And when it was, it was the war-loving Romans to attribute him with it, not his fellow Macedonians. To those he subjugated, he was conceivably known as Alexander the Butcher. From childhood, Alexander was destined for greatness. Having the famed philosopher Aristotle tutor him alongside another future king, Ptolemy Soter, the only person in the world allowed to be armed and alone in a room with Alexander. When his father died, Alexander had inherited a fantastically trained army and their highly effective Macedonian phalanx formation. Alexander merely mastered it in a way that would be used militarily for another two centuries. According to Plutarch, his favorite books were the Odyssey and the Iliad. He lathered his hair with saffron, a spice that was more expensive than gold, to preserve his gingered good looks. Yes, he was a redhead. And had a, quote, most agreeable odor, end quote. Known to enjoy his booze, he once had a drinking contest with his men, wherein 40 of them died of alcohol poisoning. Alexander preferred to be clean-shaven and liked his regiments to follow suit, not only for appearances in uniformity, but also to avoid beard-grabbing during battles. As his army smashed through territories, many of his annexations were rechristened Alexandria, the most notable in Egypt, though he did name one city Bukafala in honor of his favorite horse that was killed in battle. Even though his troops admired him as a warrior and leader, they did not always agree with his demands like the decision to assimilate his newly acquired subjects, the Persians, by forcing over 90 high-society Macedonians to marry Persian women, a very unpopular policy amongst his countrymen and the vanquished. After eight consecutive years of warring and a few failed mutinies, in 326 BCE, his soldiers had reached their limits and refused to fight anymore, preferring to go home and enjoy the spoils of their victories. Alexander died three years later at age 32 of unknown causes. Speculated explanations? Poison, liver failure, malaria, typhoid, or a lung infection. His corpse was preserved in honey, just in time for his old friend Ptolemy to get a hold of it for safekeeping, and to validate his authority in Egypt, because whoever had the former king's body was considered the new king. Scattered curiosity, have you ever heard the expression cutting the Gordian knot? Well, it involves Alexander the Great. The Gordian knot was a fabled rope entanglement which sealed a sacred ox cart. And legend held 
that whoever could untie the hopeless gnarl would be declared the king of Asia. Alexander exploited a loophole in the folklore and snipped it with his sword. Such defiance serves as a metaphor for Alexander's demeanor, as the sword was his solution to everything. Bonus curiosity, three of Fidel Castro's kids were named for the Macedonian ruler, Alexander, Alexis, and Alejandro. Two and a quarter centuries passed before one of Al's greatest admirers, Gaius Julius Caesar, was born, who was not the first Caesarian birth, by the way. That notion gets confused because the Lex Caesaria, or Law of Caesar, was a Roman caveat that required removal of an infant from the womb of a mother that died during childbirth. Caesar dealt with scandal his entire life. As a young man, he served as an ambassador to Bithynia to plead with King Nicodemus IV to become an ally with Rome. And there is much conjecture that he may have even lost his virginity to the king, leading to his nickname, the Queen of Bithynia. Gaius embraced the idea that there was no lousy press and further gave Roman citizens of the Old Republic a reason to whisper about the young man who combed his hair forward to mask his baldness and wore a fringe-sleeved toga with a loose belt, a fashion trend that others would follow. In his mid-twenties, he was kidnapped by pirates and held for ransom. And when he learned about the amount of money being asked for him, 20 talents of silver, which would be like $28 million today, he laughed at the amount and demanded that they up the number to 50 talents. And while they were waiting for the transaction to go through... He was sitting around charming his pirate captors and joked with them that once he was free, that he'd come back and murder them all. And he followed through on that promise. Caesar's first wife, Cornelia, was the daughter of Lucius Cornelius Cinna, the rival to Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix, who succeeded Cinna as one of the consuls of the Roman Republic. Sulla would prove to be a cunning opponent to those that would stand in his way, and he became the first kingfish to bring an army into Rome, an act strictly forbidden by the Senate. He also revived an office that had been defunct for 121 years, dictator, where... Once self-appointed, he prescribed enemies of the state, which were really enemies of Sulla, to be executed by any Roman in exchange for money. As Cinna's son-in-law, Caesar was ordered by Sulla to divorce Cornelia, a direction that Caesar bravely rejected, followed by abruptly getting the hell out of town for fear of retaliation and being added to the proscriptions. 
And for a minute, he was. Ultimately, Sulla reluctantly removed Gaius's name and allowed Caesar to return to Rome at the behest of some nobles speaking on Caesar's behalf but ominously warned them to look out for that loose-belted youth. Scattered curiosity, Julius Caesar had a daughter named Julia who would one day be the glue holding two-thirds of the first triumvirate together when she was married to the much older Pompey the Great. After being forced to break off an engagement to another guy just days before the wedding, but despite being an arranged marriage, the two actually had quite a bit of love for each other. And Pompey was often teased by his peers for actually being in love with his wife. And both he and Caesar were devastated when she died at the age of 22. Curiously, when Cornelia died... Caesar married Sulla's granddaughter, Pompeia, but would come to divorce her throughout the scandal of Bonadea. You see, Caesar had gained the office of Pontifex Maximus, or lead priest in Rome, and every year, Bonadea, the good goddess festival, for women only, took place in the home of the Pontifex Maximus. During the occasion in 62 BCE, a prominent Roman by the name of Publius Clodius Pulcher dressed in women's clothing and crashed the ladies' night hoping for a romantic rendezvous with Pompeia, but was found out by a random lady attendee causing Clodius to flee. As you might imagine, Caesar understood how Rome worked and knew that having people owe him favors was politically advantageous. So when Clodius was put on trial for what he had done, Caesar would not condemn the cross-dressing rascal as the culprit. Because men were forbidden from the festival Caesar was not at home the evening in question. When he was asked why then he was divorcing Pompeia, he coolly responded that any wife of Caesar must be, quote, above suspicion, end quote. Years later, Clodius and his gang of ruffians would wreak havoc amid those who would defy Julius Caesar. Like Alexander, Julius also named stuff for himself. Are you familiar with the month of July? And expanded his realm by clobbering the Celtic Gauls in what is modern-day France and even making it all the way up to Britain. Now, Caesar didn't owe favors as much as he was financially indebted to powerful men in Rome. Remember the 50-talent ransom? That was borrowed. But this isn't as much of a problem for Caesar as you might assume. Because from a creditor's perspective, the more someone owes you, the more interest you have in that person's success so they can pay you back. 
To prove he was a good investment, Caesar kept a journal of his military adventures in Gaul titled Commentari de Bello Gallico that paints a clear picture of the man that he wanted you to think that he was. In it, he frequently speaks of himself in the third person. As Sulla had done before him, in 49 BCE, Caesar brought his army into Rome's jurisdiction by crossing the Rubicon and uttering the infamous line, The die has been cast. The following year, again like Sulla, he became dictator. Then dictator for ten years, and on Valentine's Day, 44 BCE, dictator for life. Though in actuality, he'd only live another month. Gaius Julius Caesar was warned before going to the Senate the day of his assassination, leading some to speculate that the dictator was suffering from various illnesses and welcomed his demise. He may have had malaria, epilepsy, or tapeworms. Scattered curiosity, in William Shakespeare's tragedy of Julius Caesar, a clock chimes three times to add to the drama of the deadly revelation concerning the Ides of March. But those kind of clocks would not exist for another 1,400 years. Also, Caesar's final words were not et tu brute, as the bard would suggest. Just before being attacked by the Senate and apportioned 23 knife jabs, his toga was torn by Tilius Cimber as the cue for the ambush to begin, to which Caesar pronounced, Why, this is violence! Servilius Casca delivered the first thrust. By the time Marcus Junius Brutus the Younger, who might have actually been Caesar's love child from an affair with a lady named Servilla, got to him, Caesar then put forth, Even you, my boy? Brutal, Brutus. Shakespeare wrote another play relevant to the series of incidents following Caesar's death called Antony and Cleopatra. Like Romeo and Juliet, the twosome has gone down in antiquity as a hot historical couple of forbidden passion, but only after her former lover was dead, Gaius Julius Caesar. As I stated in the intro, the Cleopatra that we are all familiar with was not Egyptian, and not even the first in her family to have the name. She was Cleopatra VII. Her lineage can be traced to Ptolemy Soter. Remember him? Alexander's most trusted officer and friend? Cleopatra VII was married to her brother, Ptolemy XIII, with whom she was also at civil war with. In 48 BCE, Julius Caesar was in pursuit of his former friend, son-in-law, financial backer, and political ally, Pompey the Great, with whom he was fighting a civil war with. Pompey had sailed to Africa to plead with state heads of that area that owed him favors. 
But Caesar's influence was such that when Pompey arrived on the shores, he was speared, decapitated, and the head was presented to Caesar when he weighed anchor, who was pissed. Caesar insisted to know who had carried out the atrocity and had them executed and demanded answers from Ptolemy and Cleopatra immediately and summoned them to disband their armies before facing him. Ptolemy just didn't, and Cleopatra couldn't get past Ptolemy's army. Ever the clever mind, she had herself rolled up in a carpet and smuggled directly to Caesar. The two hooked up almost immediately. She would later give birth to their son, Caesarion, a.k.a. Little Caesar, a.k.a. Ptolemy Caesar. Upon returning to Italy, Romans treated Cleopatra the same way that we would treat a Hollywood homewrecker in the tabloids today. Remember, Caesar was married already to his third wife now, and then he brings in his foreign baby mama, intending to use Roman assets to help her fight her incestuous brother-husband in Egypt? Was he that smitten with this antipodal queen? It's not like Caesar was an incel. He slept with everybody, including the wives of his enemies and his friends. Modern historians surmise that Cleopatra was not as physically beautiful as legend and Elizabeth Taylor would have you believe. Coins stamped with her visage depict the consort's masculine features. Therefore, her prowess as an administrator, advanced intellect, wit, undoubted influence, adoration of her people, and Egyptian exoticism were probably what made her so appealing to the powerful men in her life. Cleopatra was in Rome when Caesar's murder took place, after which she and Mark Antony, one of Caesar's closest confidants, tried to have Caesarion succeed Julius Caesar. But that honor instead went to Gaius Octavius Thurnius, or Octavian, Caesar's grandnephew and adopted heir from years earlier. Cleopatra smartly got Caesarion out of Rome. That's when things really heated up with she and Mark Antony, as both needed the other to prosper against a common enemy. Mark also had a wife in Rome. In their absence, Octavian would become the first Roman emperor and declare war on Antony and Cleopatra, who were now living on borrowed time. Contrary to legend, Cleopatra likely did not die from the bite of an asp. Sorry, crossword puzzle enthusiasts. But rather poisoned herself with an implement doused in snake venom. As the pharaoh of Egypt, she was not going to give Octavian the satisfaction of capturing and parading her through Rome in a military triumph. When Octavian learned of her fate, 
he renamed the month in which it took place, August, and appropriated the name Caesar Augustus to commemorate his victory over the influential woman. Antony also committed suicide. Rounding out our olden Roman misrememberings, I will tell you that the final emperor in the Julio-Claudian family line, Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, most certainly did not play the fiddle as Rome burned. Sorry again, crossworders. Because he played the lyre and wasn't even in Rome when the 64 AD blaze broke out. The fiddling refers to Nero being idle throughout the tragedy. Nero rebuilt Rome after the Great Fire and was revered by Romans and Greeks up until and even past the date of his death. He lowered taxes, allowed slaves to complain about their cruel masters, and bring up charges against them. Nero also competed in the Greek Olympics in the ten-horse chariot race, performed in concerts and plays, and won a handful of events. He was emperor, after all. That isn't to say that he didn't have a brutal side. His mother, Agrippa, sister of the emperor Caligula, married the emperor Claudius in an effort to set up Nero for adoption to succeed the throne. And five years into his term as the youngest Roman emperor at age 17, Nero had Agrippa killed because it was evident that she wished to rule through him by proxy. He also killed two of his wives and scapegoated all of Rome's problems on Christians, not an uncommon practice of the day. Yet his reputation as a sadistic lunatic may have been augmented by the ever-constant rising of Christianity and falling of the Roman Empire. Despite having everything, Nero committed suicide at age 31. Now, if I asked you to close your eyes and picture Genghis Khan, I'm confident that most of you would conjure up a similar image in your mind's eye. An image that would be distorted once I revealed to you that he was a tall man with red hair and green eyes which was actually not an infrequent trait to be found amongst Eurasians of the 13th century. However, it should be noted that all likenesses of him were made after his death, as he forbid his countenance from being reproduced. So, we only have descriptions of him to work with, and Mongolians did not keep good records, if any at all. His actual name was Temujin, meaning blacksmith. Khan translates to ruler, a title and position he took in the year 1206. One quality quite distinct to the Khan was that he promoted military and executive compulsion based on merit versus status. Taking prisoners on as soldiers 
and some as generals. His fierce cavalry mastered the art of false retreats and luring enemies into an ambush of deadly arrows through a dust storm created by sticks tied to Mongolian horse tails. Brilliant. Temujin also set up messenger stations, kind of like a proto-pony express, called the Yam every 15 to 40 miles in his dominions, allowing communication to spread fast. But while Genghis did exhibit clemency, usually giving victims the choice of surrender first and allowing those subdued to retain their religious beliefs, he was also a formidable adversary to those who failed to recognize his authority. On one occasion, he sent three emissaries to Persia to establish a trade deal. Not liking the terms... One of the Khan's representatives was beheaded by the Persians, who sent the other two representatives back to Mongolia and instructed them to present the head to the Khan. Genghis responded by wiping out 75% of their population and filling the offending Persian governor's head with molten silver. Genghis Khan's regime is estimated to have caused over 40 million deaths, a number only rivaled by the number of births to come out of these conflicts from the raping of the vanquished. 8% of all Asian men alive today are supposed to have the great Khan's blood rushing through their veins. The Shah Jahan, builder of the Taj Mahal, is just one of his many direct descendants, along with his four sons, Jochi, Changatai, Tuli, and Ogadai. Genghis's empire was split amongst the boys, but Ogadai would eventually take rule, followed by Genghis's grandson, Kublai Khan, who would one day allow Marco Polo safe passage through the lands of the steppe, furthering the knowledge of the East in the West. Speaking of East-West connections, I'm guessing you grew up learning that the Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan was the first person to circumnavigate the globe trying to reach the Spice Islands. Me too but my teachers failed to mention that he died along the journey. Ferdinand set sail in 1519 with five ships crewed by misfits, criminals, and social outcasts in the need of a new life and with nothing to lose. The campaign was plagued with mutiny attempts. Magellan was the first European to document seeing a penguin in South America as he navigated the strait that now bears his name, connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, the latter of which he called Mar Pacifico, Peaceful Sea. Three years after setting out, he'd made it as far as the Philippines, where island natives, under the order of King Lapu-Lapu, stabbed him to death. Because Magellan, who believed himself to be doing God's work and thus divinely untouchable, 
was baptizing people and converting them to Christianity without permission. Magellan's only surviving ship, the Victoria, made it back to Spain on September 6, 1522. However, his slave of 10 years, Enrique, who was originally from the Philippines, was technically the first man to make it all the way around the globe upon returning to his land of origin. Francis Drake did not complete the feat for another 58 years. And when the cost of all the lost men, ships, and materials were calculated, Spain still managed to gain a profit on the endeavor, which infuriated Magellan's homeland of Portugal, where he was considered a traitor. As was Marie Antoinette, who is synonymous with the French Revolution, but not French at all herself. She was the Archduchess of Austria. As a kid, she was denied permission to ride horses, settled for saddling donkeys instead, and got to meet the closest thing to a rock star in the mid-1700s. Because a young Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had come to play for the royal family at the court in Vienna. Her marriage at age 14 to Louis Auguste, later dubbed King Louis XVI, was arranged as part of a pact between France and Austria. Much of the indulgences attributed to the totally out-of-touch house of bourbon are absolutely true, making Marie Antoinette another foreign queen, the perfect patsy on which to pin French inequalities and grievances. Hence, it is not surprising to me that there is no record at all of her ever having delivered the much-publicized line, let them eat cake, in response to her destitute constituency being able to afford bread. After Louis had been executed, she too was convicted of high treason and sentenced to death by the Revolutionary Tribunal. Legend holds that the night before she was guillotined, her hair turned white, known today as Marie Antoinette Syndrome. And before having her head lopped off, she accidentally stepped on the foot of the executioner making her last words, quote, Pardon me, sir, I meant not to do it. End quote. Napoleon is another oft-chronicled figure of revolutionary France who was also not French. He was born in Corsica, which had become a French territory one year prior. To us, Napoleon is the embodiment of French supremacy but he initially wanted his native Corsica to oust the French from his homeland. He even tried to enlist in the Russian army and navy. Both replied no. The byproduct? Within a decade, he was supervising the world's finest army. And humbly called for 10 days of national mourning in 1799 when General George Washington died even though George's win-loss battle ratio as a general sucked. 
I covered Napoleon in great detail in perhaps my favorite episode of Scattered Curiosities, Emperors, Robber Barons, Cowboys, and Indians, Part 1. So I will refer you to the archives for a more in-depth discussion. But here is some stuff that was not included. In that episode, I compare Napoleon Bonaparte to Theodore Roosevelt, but neglected to mention a great parallel between the two men. Before Roosevelt was president of the United States or governor of New York, he was head of the New York City Police Department, which was riddled with corruption. So, he would often go undercover late at night and observe what his patrolmen were doing. Similarly, Napoleon would dress up as a commoner and walk the streets of Paris to learn what his countrymen thought of him. And on the topic of clothes, Napoleon liked his army to look sharp and tidy. And it is rumored that he ordered buttons to be sewn up his soldiers' uniform sleeves to keep them from wiping their noses on them. Now, whether or not that's true is still up for debate, as is the suggestion that claims the emperor to have been afraid of cats, a statement for which there is no supportive evidence. In fact, the fear of felines has been attributed to Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler, Alexander the Great, and Benito Mussolini. In this instance, it is possible history has confused Napoleon I with his nephew Napoleon III, who is on record as not liking cats. Ever wonder why Englanders drive on the left side of the road, but France and America on the right? Napoleon, who made it regulation in the places he overran. He never conquered England responsible for countless numbers of deaths and ignominiously spending 30,000 troops a month, Napoleon did not endorse the use of torture and said this of the practice, quote, The barbarous custom of having men beaten that are suspected of having important secrets to reveal must be abolished. It has always been recognized that this way of interrogating men by putting them to torture produces nothing worthwhile. The poor wretches say anything that comes to their mind and what they think the interrogator wishes to know. End quote. Ironically, Napoleon had no problem torturing those around him with his terribly unmusical singing. Notwithstanding, the extremely musical Ludwig von Beethoven originally wrote his Symphony No. 3 for Napoleon Bonaparte because the composer so admired him. Ludwig would change his tune when Napoleon transformed from dictator to emperor. C'est la vie. But Napoleon was not inartistic by any means. I mean, the man had the Mona Lisa hanging in his bedroom when he ruled France for crying out loud. And his exploratory expeditions uncovered the Venus de Milo, accidentally breaking off and losing her arms in transit, 
in addition to discovering the Rosetta Stone, which was commandeered by the blockading Royal Navy. Plus, when Napoleon was 26 years old, he wrote a 17-page romance novel called Clisson et Junie that you can buy right now on Amazon.com. And during his time in exile, he wrote a book about Gaius Julius Caesar. Scattered curiosity, the fifth mayor of New Orleans, Louisiana, made plans to relocate Napoleon after his shaming defeat at Waterloo by prepping a house in the Big Easy. But when Bonaparte died, the mayor moved his own family into the dwelling. And it is still known today as the Napoleon House. Bonus curiosity, his great-nephew, Charles Joseph Bonaparte, was part of Teddy Roosevelt's executive cabinet, served as Secretary of the Navy, and, as U.S. Attorney General in 1920, he oversaw the creation of the FBI. Finally, we come to the German Fuhrer Adolf Hitler, who was not German. He was born in Austria-Hungary and despised Germany until realizing it to be the Alpha Nation. There is no question that Hitler was a monster that ordered the death of unforgivable numbers. Yet, his reign of terror is rivaled by the great Alexander and the much-romanticized Julius Caesar both responsible for their own bloody holocausts and genocide. And like them, Hitler received genuine praise during his lifetime. He earned an Iron Cross in World War I, a decoration recommended by a Jew, believe it or not, and he was Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1938. Which, by the way, is not always an honor, but rather someone who is newsworthy. Others to receive the acclaim are the Ayatollah Khomeini, Nikita Khrushchev, and Joseph Stalin. Scatter curiosity, Adolf's nephew, William Patrick Hitler, a native of Liverpool, England, traveled to Germany in the hopes of working for his uncle. To his dismay, there were no positions available. Once estranged from Uncle Adolf, it became amicable for William to accept an invitation to the United States by newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst in 1939. As the war escalated, William found himself stranded in America and started to fall in love with it. Within five years, William Hitler managed to get the approval from Franklin Delano Roosevelt to join the U.S. Navy, where he earned a Purple Heart for being hurt in action. Bonus curiosity, it is difficult to imagine Adolf Hitler without his little Charlie Chaplin mustache, but in the early days of World War I, he sported a strongman handlebar mustache that had to be trimmed to accommodate a vital implement on the battlefield, his gas mask. And that is a wrap! 
How scattered was that season premiere, huh? As always, I'd like to thank you for sticking with us and coming back for season three of the show. I know I don't get out as much content as you or I would like, or at any consistent pace. The podcast market is even more saturated than last year, and it is nearly impossible to make the enterprise profitable. But you can help. No, don't send me money. I mean, you can send me money via the donate button on scattercuriosities.com, but I'm not asking you to do that. To help the show, all you need to do is take a couple of seconds and give us a share or a like or a rating or review of your favorite episodes of our program. And following us at Albert Einstein on Twitter for Daily Curiosity. us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show